You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting remotely for WFHB, this is Benedict Jones. And I'm Lucinda Lonick. This is the WFHB Local News for Thursday, June 1st, 2023. In today's feature report, we conclude with part four of a series by environmental correspondent Zero Rose from an interview with Bill Brown of the Environmental Resilience Institute, or ERI. The two discuss how ERI assists institutions, communities, organizations, businesses, and governmental entities to plan for, mitigate, and adapt to the climate change impacts. But first, your local headlines. At the Ellettsville Town Council meeting on May 22nd, Town Marshal Jimmy Dernal presented Police Officer Alva Bohal with Officer of the Year. But on behalf of the board, uh, Ellettsville uh, Town Board President William Ellis, Town Manager Mike Farmer, Chief of Police Jimmy Dernal, this award is being presented to you not only for your outstanding work effort in the calendar year 2022, but also for your 25 years of dedication to the town of Ellettsville. You have, shown yourself, you have shown yourself to be a professional, dependable officer at all times. You achieve success when confronted with limited resources. Your excellent ability to control situations that require police intervention have been noted by your superiors. And I'll tell you a quick story about that. I hadn't been here very long and uh, went to back Alvy up on Main Street on a domestic. And as he was walking up, he's about 20 feet in front of me. And uh, he was walking to the domestic, which is in a, an apartment back of the house. And... Uh, now, this guy came running down the stairs of the house and was mouth to mouth to mouth, and Alvy went, and back up the stairs he went. Just that, <laughs> just that simple. I, said, I know I got a scene man here. You're, you're, you achieve success when confronted with limited resources. Your excellent ability to control situations that require limited intervention has been noted by your superiors. You can be honored for your career with the Ellsville Police Department. Your professionalism and enthusiasm is second to none. Awarded this day, May 22nd, 2023, Police Officer of the Year, Albie L. Bohaw. Then, board member Kip Hetty announced the opening of several fire department positions, three of which would be full-time and one would be part-time. He introduced Sam Saft as a potential new firefighter. Tonight, we want to bring forward um, and, and try to hire part-time firefighter. And then we're also going to be bringing forward three for full-time. So the, I'd get started with the part-time. Okay. Uh, we'd like to bring forward Sam Saft. He's been a volunteer since June of 2022. Uh, he's currently uh, finishing up his EMT training. Uh, we'd like to bring him on as part-time firefighter. Hetty walked through the candidates for full-time fire department positions, which included Logan Burpo, Brandon Johnson, and Matt Seabot. The council approved the hiring of full-time fire department personnel unanimously. Next, the council heard the second hearing of the water rate increase ordinance. Pamela Samples asked for clarification why they are raising the water rates. Town manager Mike Farmer responded. We're raising the water bill to help with pipes, to redo like bad pipes and whatever's needed. <clears throat> We're raising the rates for many reasons. 
but yes, um, we have a 10-year plan that's part of the rate increase, and it uh, uh, actually lays out where and what we will do as far as uh, replacing water pipes. Some of our water pipes are 50 years old, 50 year, more years old, actually 70 years old. And so a lot of those need to be replaced and upsized to meet current uh, standards and uh, firefighting allows for better fire, firefighting capabilities as well. Um, inflation's killing us as far as normal O&M materials and we are building a building and we'll have to bond for it and pay for it. And we're, we're putting, we're um, going to um, move out of a, I don't know how old the blue building is, but it's probably 60 or 70 years old and it's rotten to the core and a couple of possums live below us under the concrete. And I could go on and on about um, the building. So we, we just need to move into a modern building. You gave, but when you sent out the email today, it talked about the building, so that's going to be included, right? Yeah, that's yeah, that's included. Okay. But um, I mean, it's just normal to have to replace your infrastructure after so many years. We even actually have some water mains that were not concrete uh, lined, and so they have tubercles in them, and so their fire flow capabilities are probably reduced by half. So we're going after the oldest stuff. Uh, one of our one of our projects, at one of the larger projects, is probably going to cost about, oh, I'd say about $380,000 is to uh, replace a line from um, Bank Road and Starnes Road back into town. That's probably one of our oldest lines, and it's where we used to get our water uh, when we had our own wells before Lake Monroe. So. Councilmember William Ellis commented that the cost of not fixing the water infrastructure would be more expensive than this preventative maintenance. Farmer added that they pay attention to when infrastructure will need to be replaced and shared some history on the water infrastructure. I was looking and talking to people from other towns. They were saying that the cost of not fixing the infrastructure is exponentially higher than doing what we're doing. So as an example, if a water line breaks, what? how does that emergency call, I mean, that's a lot more expensive than just replacing it normally, isn't it? Well, yeah, I mean, we keep track of where um, where and when we have main breaks. And I've been here, I don't know how long I've been here, 25 years or more. So, um, you know, we pay attention to problem right. water mains. And, and so they get the most attention. And uh, so sometimes a point repair is good enough. But for instance, Smith Pike, that's on our list of, of water projects. There's got to be, since I've been here, there's got to be 40 or 50 clamps on that main. It sounds like a lot. It is a lot, but um, it's going to cost a lot of money to replace it. So you just kind of have to weigh, you know. I guess I'm saying the cost of waiting and kicking the can down the road could be quite a, quite a bit expensive. Well, yeah, and anything we're doing now costs twice as much as it did 10 years ago. Not to mention the loss to businesses on an right. emergency versus a schedule. Right. Businesses coming to look here or even people moving. Having water is probably a pretty firm prerequisite. Well, round one of improving our water infrastructure it was in 2013 when we did a bond to put a secondary water line into town. So we have a plentiful water supply since then. And uh, just to remind everybody, we 
literally was running out of water during 2012. We couldn't keep our tanks full. I, I'd never experienced anything like that in the 53 years I've been doing this. Ever, all the towns were uh, having that same problem. So, you know, that round one of getting the secondary water line has really put us in good shape for maybe decades. But the infrastructure that's still, you know, the old infrastructure, it, it just needs replaced because of water quality and, um, as you say, maintenance. The council unanimously approved the water rate increase ordinance. The next Ellettsville Town Council meeting will be held on June 5th. The Monroe County Board of Health met on May 22nd to discuss and approve contract revisions for health department staff. President of the board, Carol Toluskian, introduced the contract to alter the administrative assistant, Jamie Ford's position. What has happened as things um, evolved over time, <laughs> that, you know, uh, the current administrative assistant, who is Jamie over here in the corner, um, is doing a lot more than... Uh, her job description just describes basically, right? Health Department Director Laurie Kelly explained what the changes would be and Talukian added on to what they are proposing to add to the administrative assistance position's tasks. So there are some modifications that you'll see um, in bolded on page uh, two that more accurately kind of represent the overall uh -huh. duties which is assist with preparation of annual budgets, including assistant with, uh, assisting with authorizing and monitoring the preparation of payroll, vendor claims, purchase orders, transfer of funds, and additional appropriations, conducts fiscal and management research, and compiles data for com comparative analysis, ensuring the department directives are met accordingly. Sounds good. Assist with running financial reports as necessary for involved invoicing grant reimbursement claims, coordinates ongoing staff development and related education, ensuring proper maintenance of professional status and fulfillment of individual improvement plans. And this goes on and on, doesn't it? Assist yeah. with supporting the duties. Yeah, well, James is doing a lot more than her original job description. I'd just like to point that out. Uh, assist with supporting department goals by acting as department liaison as directed by the health administrator, able to attend meetings in absence of the health administrator as directed by necessary, may serve as a public speaker for meetings such as directed by the health administrator, Execute special projects as directed by the health administrator. Coordinates department, computer use, and technical services. Serves as a troubleshooter when problems arise. And reports unsolved problems to technical services department. Uploads and updates department reports and inspection documents to OpenGov system. Assists with updating the GIS system with department reports. Analyzes and researches laws, codes, procedures with required documentation and retention. Able to serve as backup assistance to the financial manager during periods of time off and or vacancies. All those I guarantee you she's been doing because I've heard about them. Yeah. Yeah. The board unanimously approved the revised contract. The board also approved a contract revision to increase Kelly's hours from 35 to 40 due to her job requiring more hours than it currently has allotted. Talukian introduced the contract revision. One of the concerns that uh, has come up is the fact that our health administrator you know, always has, but continues to to uh, work well over her 35 hours that her her job description pays for. Kelly shared that recently she has worked around 13 to 15 unpaid hours a week. Talukian emphasized that with the addition of Senate Bill 4, Kelly's responsibilities will only increase and she will need more time to take care of them. 
and it, and this is not going to get any better with SB4. Okay, <laughs> this is just going to continue to get worse. So I think time for us to suggest that Lori can be moved to a forty-hour week or thirty-five-hour week. Next, the contracts approved by the Board of Health will go to the Monroe County Council, who will hear the proposed contract revisions at an upcoming meeting on June 13th or July 11th. In today's feature report, we conclude with part four of a series by environmental correspondent Zero Rose from interview with Bill Brown of the Environmental Resilience Institute, or ERI, of Indiana University, on how ERI assists institutions, communities, organizations, businesses, and governmental entities to plan for and mitigate and adapt to climate change impacts. Environmental Resilience Institute, you want to um, explain uh, what that is exactly that the university has been putting together and I guess how you're interfacing with uh, Bloomington in particular with that? Sure. The Environmental Resilience Institute was originally funded as a grand challenge of the university and uh, millions of dollars went into funding new faculty and faculty research about uh, vulnerabilities that Indiana might face in the future or currently with climate change. And, you know, how's that gonna impact crops, flooding, heat, extreme weather, uh, et cetera. And uh, developed a lot of tools that are still being used by communities. But over time, um, programs were developed where we engage faculty and students in communities around Indiana to do greenhouse gas inventories and climate action plans. And we've had over 195 um, McKinney Climate Fellows. These are um, graduate students or undergraduate students at IU that are funded to do an internship with a community or a corporation or a nonprofit that uh, is subsidized by the McKinney Family Foundation. And they are educated in um, a one-week climate camp to uh, be assured that they know how to do greenhouse gas inventories or climate action plans or whatever it is they're going to be doing with their partner. And um, that system has been very successful over uh, the years. And um, there's been uh, 50 local governments, for example, that have taken advantage of that. And uh, quite a few companies, um, 61 nonprofits, 32 corporations, and what has happened uh, are a couple of things that are interesting. One is that we've been able to keep more IU students here in Indiana that want to be sustainability professionals. They want to work on climate and uh, clean tech, clean, clean energy, et cetera. And they've gotten to know people in Indiana that have then hired them as their sustainability professionals or um, what have you. And uh, the Communities, the corporations, the, the nonprofits have seen this as a pipeline for 
hiring that they've been looking forward to and they can develop a relationship with the climate fellow during their internship and then um, know what they're getting when they hire somebody. So it's been a great professional development pipeline for Indiana. It's elevated the sustainability of many communities and corporations and nonprofits throughout Indiana. And it's provided a, a career path for students um, to participate in Indiana. And it's given their faculty mentors uh, an opportunity to train students specifically for the problems that IU communities are facing. The new wrinkle is the Indiana Resilience Funding Hub that just started. And that is specifically designed to help rural communities fill out the grant forms and administer federal grants for all this new money that's out there for resilience projects. We will hopefully develop a relationship, a direct relationship with five to eight communities, help them through the grant writing process, help identify what their issues are and what grants are available to address those issues, whether it be uh, funding for electric vehicle charging or building energy efficiency upgrades or solar or LED lighting for their street lights, whatever. Uh, there's grant money out there that's available and we want to help them obtain it. So in addition to that, there are going to be a lot of other communities we want to help through webinars, through information. So our website for the Indiana Resilience Funding Hub also has lots of portals where they can learn about grants that are coming out. They have guides. If they're a city, there's a guide for cities, there's a guide for counties, there's a guide for universities. So uh, we want to help people kind of get their arms around all this that's coming through the program and how they might take advantage of it, when it might be coming out. We've developed um, two pagers for them for common grant programs that are coming out. So we're helping communities through those one by one, and then also reaching out to the whole state of Indiana through the webinar process, through these two pagers, through the resources we have on the website, and just trying to help in any way we can, as many communities as we can, no matter what their size or where they're located, um, get through this journey. And with resilience in the title, uh, that seems to kind of uh, focus a little bit, not not just on uh, the preventing of climate change, but on adapting to the climate change that's already happening. And I, I know that they, I believe they've prepared maps to show projected changes so that people can look up their area, see about how much more flooding or heat issues or drought or uh, the type of things that they might be facing in order to plan ahead for that. Do you guys actually uh, do any design planning uh, consultancy as well uh, for these communities? Well, again, um, ERI has done a lot of planning uh, work with communities and also have brought the communities together in cohorts to do planning around a particular theme like urban forestry, for example, or heat mitigation. But um, the programs and the grant funding are really uh, look at climate mitigation and climate adaptation and resilience. How how quickly can you spring back from uh, a, a severe weather event or tornado or or anything, uh, a severe uh, heat wave or drought, flooding? Uh, how well is your community set up to respond uh, after an event 
Uh, how are you making your community less vulnerable to those types of events in the first place? And how are you potentially keeping more greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere so uh, it doesn't become even worse in the future? So we look at all of those aspects and it is community driven. Uh, you know, we don't tell communities what they should be doing. Then the tools to evaluate their own vulnerabilities and plan together uh, what they think they should address or want to address. And then we try to help them find that grant funding that may be available to a system to implement that program. And how do you think uh, the city of Bloomington is doing on their climate action plan goals and uh, how involved with you, with the city, are you on kind of the evolution and the implementation of that? The city has been a consumer of our climate fellows. <laughs> And um, you know, a number of our former climate fellows have worked for the city of Bloomington and uh, continue to work for the city of Bloomington as staff in the sustainability office. So one of the things that Bloomington has been doing that's very impressive is increasing the amount of funding for sustainability efforts. And they have become very adept at grabbing uh, grants Grant. as they come along. And um, so they are a community that we can point to when other communities are trying to learn how to do some of these things and uh, they've gotten very good at it. But again, they have been consumers of many of the programs that we've offered in the past because you know it's so convenient for our climate fellows to work there and it's so convenient for them to take advantage of that resource uh, so nearby. But you know, the Bloomington city and the Bloomington campus of IU are intertwined and uh, the populations are intertwined and interrelated. Uh, so what happens at IU is very important to Bloomington and what happens with Bloomington is very important to IU. So that's a very important relationship in terms of sustainability that is um, always active. Uh, Bloomington, I believe, is still uh, considered the most expensive place to live in the state. And uh, they have the new Hopewell development they were the old hospital was torn down and moved out to the perimeter. And it seems that they're kind of shaving back affordable housing. And they're now talking in terms of kind of workforce housing instead of low income. And they've scaled them back, I think, to 20%. And the justification for that is saying that uh, because of the cost of acquiring the property in the first place. And so you have these scenarios of green housing being more expensive to build on the front end is the conventional understanding. But it seems to me that if they implemented these kind of efficiency measures and eco-design that you're talking about that and implemented a few other things like turning it into an urban farm so that these things become revenue sources for the people to live there and have all these ecosystems right in the heart of the city close to the downtown that they could uh, mitigate a lot of that cost by turning it into green collar jobs and, and sort of uh, cottage industry for the residents instead of making it another kind of boutique high priced, you know, the majority of it, that it would seem that they could possibly wipe out our stats if they made it mostly affordable, not necessarily low income designated, but under market, I mean, what do you think about 
at Hopewell Development. Do you guys have any any ore in that water? Well, affordable, affordable housing is really a tough nut to crack. But um, you know, I, I do think that there's a misconception that affordability is just the first cost of the building. And um, you know, if you look at anybody's cost of living, it's not just the building that they're concerned about, it's their utility bills and the cost of operation. So I think the cost of operation has to be included in any building, whether it's an existing building or a new building. And there, are, uh, right now there's uh, grant funding coming available that you can use up to $14,000 to renovate an existing house if, if it's in a low income qualified um, housing. The other thing I've noticed is that there is a Department of Energy Zero Energy Ready Housing Program. Many of the developments that have taken advantage of that program are Habitat for Humanity um, neighborhoods where uh, the whole key is affordability, but they've recognized that affordability includes affordable utility bills. And if you can make a home ready to have its own solar, uh, anticipating that that's going to get cheaper in the future, or you may, may qualify for some sort of grant funding in the future, then uh, you create an all-electric affordable home that is ready for solar, and uh, that doesn't take much of an extra investment to do that. And so we see a lot of uh, Habitat for Humanity chapters that are doing that sort of thing. And I had an assignment for my students where their goal was to create affordable, energy-positive housing and uh, they were able to tackle that. And um, so, you know, I think that's a misconception that you throw out uh, energy efficiency when you're aiming for affordable housing. And, you know, contractors will tell you that if you do it right, uh, affordable means that you have a building that performs very well. And uh, it's a bit of a trick to pull that off, but uh, you have to think about it from the beginning. And again, if you have a, a well-insulated envelope, you can downsize the heating and cooling equipment and maybe save as much money as you would have spent uh, you know, if you uh, eliminated some of the cost of the insulation or the, the better windows. So you have to think of the home as a system and reduce the cost of the heating and cooling systems and then um, look for opportunities to add that solar PV in the future. And we're seeing that there's grant money now available through programs like these tax incentives programs we're seeing that makes that much more affordable. WFHB Local News is brought to you by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specialising in solar hot water, solar electricity and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. More information online at mpisolarenergy.com.
You've been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Noel Herhusky Schneider in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Services. Our feature was produced by Zero Rose. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. Engineer and executive producer is Kate Young. For WFHB, I'm Lucinda Lanuk. And I'm Benedict Jones. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent daily news program. You can hear tonight's full broadcast online at WFHB.org. The WFHB Local News is also available as a podcast. Just search our call letters WFHB wherever you listen to your podcast. Subscribe to never miss another local news program. Stay tuned for Big Talk a one-on-one conversation with some of Bloomington's most fascinating people. Coming up next on WFHB. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News on WFHB Community Radio. Our news is written and reported by volunteers working to provide local news, cover local issues, and strengthen our local community. We invite you to participate. You may submit questions, comments, and story ideas to news at WFHB.org. You can become a WFHB local news volunteer by attending new volunteer orientation. Feel free to check out the WFHB local news archive at WFHB.org to find newscasts, individual stories, and catch a live feed of the WFHB local news. We are local, longer, 